It's Sunday morning. Time for the great outdoors with Charlie Potter. Brought to you by the all-new Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Good morning. Welcome to the Great Outdoors Show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio. Thank you so much for being with me this morning. We're going to start off with a story about whooping cranes. Something that, well, George Archibald, who founded the International Crane Foundation up in Baraboo, Wisconsin, could have only dreamed of. Cranes, whooping cranes, were virtually extinct 50 years ago. Uh, 80 years ago, they weren't sure there were any left. 50 years ago, they knew there were a few. How about this summer? In Wisconsin, 22 whooping crane pairs nested in Wisconsin with local landowners who International Crane Foundation calls whooper heroes, 22 cranes. There were no cranes nesting in Wisconsin before George Archibald started the International Crane Foundation. That is one of conservation's success stories. We watch sandhill cranes that have exploded in numbers, and they are continent-wide, and they're hunting seasons for sandhill cranes in a number of states due to crop depredation issues. Whoopers, not so successful. They've come back from very low numbers to just a few hundred in the wild, but 22 in Wisconsin. George Archibald really deserves, well, he deserves all the credit. He won't take it. He's way too modest. But I've known George Archibald and the International Crane Foundation virtually since its founding. He is one of the most remarkable conservationists our world has ever known. His passion for cranes has taken him around the world. He went to China before China even opened up with Nixon, so he went to China before the President of the United States did. It's a remarkable story, the International Crane Foundation, and to show just an example of how successful they've been, 22 whoopers are nesting in Wisconsin this summer. That's very, very cool. So moving from cranes and an exciting story there, I have to say there's not an exciting story out of the Masai Mara in Kenya, long way from here, but a great friend of mine, an individual I've had on the air before, Ann Kent Taylor, who has spent her life trying to save wildlife in Africa and leading tours around Africa for people who want to see the game in Africa, sent me a note this week as part of her mid-year report, A.K. Taylor International, which has been a huge success for trying to help uh, protect animals in Kenya. She said that the Masamara, which is enormous, is uh, is having a first-time land ch- ownership change. And many of the local Masamari community are selling off their parcels of land to outsiders who are buying it as an investment. And the first thing they want to do it stopped the wildlife from trans- from coming ingress and egress across their property. The inevitable end result is a huge increase in human and wildlife conflict. There are now significant added cha- challenges from human encroachment into the into the Mara, uh, where land has has basically for the first time been able to be demarcated and privatized, with locals selling off their interests. Uh, electric fences are proliferating across an area that never had any fences. And it's these are these are areas that have been open to grazing lands and are critical habitat for for uh, sheltering and rearing wild animals. An example of what happened is recently a bull elephant couldn't get to its feeding grounds because an electric fence had been put up. 
and instead of carrying on its way as it would have to gone into the bush, uh, it attacked a group of school children on their way to school. Can you imagine this? In America, you're walking, a group of kids are walking to school, and here comes a bull elephant running down a road at you trying to kill you. Well, that, that's everyday life in Kenya. But in this case, the school children escaped uh, the rage of the elephant, and the elephant is unable to reach its its ancestral uh, grounds. And as a result, it is it is trying to find other ways to get there and attacking individuals and, and, and structures in its way. This is what's happening across a lot of Africa, but in particularly in Kenya on the, on the Mari. So we talk about, you know, we just take things for granted here. We don't realize that Africa is is truly a world so foreign to all of us and how, how people live and, and how they have to live with wildlife. But Ann Kent Taylor is doing a, a remarkable job. Reminds me, so here we talk in the first part of the show about two incredible individuals, Dr. George Archibald and Ann Kent Taylor, each in their own, making an enormous difference for the world due to their passion. And it, it sort of makes me think, as I often do, that people of passion for conservation gets things done. They lead. Very seldom do groups get things done. Groups may get things done or accomplished with a leader who is passionate, but they don't on their own without a visionary and without a passionate leader, they don't tend to amount to much. And in this case, International Crane Foundation is saving cranes around the world, and Ann Kent Taylor is doing everything she can, working with conservation and business interests to save the wildlife of East Africa. So moving from those two great individuals, I've got to talk for a moment about sage-grouse. I have talked about grouse in the past, sage-grouse in the West. They're obviously a cousin of the grouse that we have here in the Midwest. And I've talked about the precipitous decline in grouse populations across the American West and and the, really the conflicting views as to what is going on. And recently I had an interaction with individuals on both sides of the sage-grouse issue, that being the Bureau of Land Management, which thinks it's its charter now, along with the Forest Service, is to is to save the sage-grouse, and with farmers and ranchers who believe they absolutely know what's going on with the sage-grouse, and it's not what the Bureau of Land Management thinks is going on, and then also with what I would simply call the continuing radical environmental groups who believe that uh, sage-grouse are headed for extinction and we should shut everything down. Uh, I'll speak about this more after the break, but what is happening is we don't have the science to know how to manage sage-grouse. We don't understand what has caused the, the dramatic decline in sage-grouse populations across much of the American West. We have theories, and the theories of landowners are very different than the theories of biologists. And they don't seem to be, the biologists is not, and the landowners don't seem to be connecting because the landowners really don't have a forum in which to have their views heard. And that is the part of the show that I think is I want to talk about, which is so important, is why do we ignore people who spend their lives outdoors, or in the case of ranchers and farmers, particularly ranchers in the American West, they're out with their cattle, they're out on the landscape every single day, and they have been for decades, and they have been for generations. Why would scientists who are sitting in a cubicle somewhere, whether it's Washington, D.C., or Lander, Wyoming, or Boise, Idaho, wherever it might be, could even be Chicago, how do they know more about what's happening in the land than the landowner 
who is there every single day. And we are reaching a point in the West where landowners are getting fairly fed up with the idea of what they call classroom biology running into their everyday way of doing business because they think they understand what's going on with the sage grouse. And the biologists have a very different view, and therefore their process for bringing back the sage grouse conflict with each other. I'm going to talk more about that when I come back in just a moment. Thank you very much for listening to The Great Outdoor Show here on WGN Radio. This is Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN. And first, a message from our longtime sponsors, the Northwest Indiana and Chicagoland Chevrolet dealers. Hiking, camping, and hunting, it's all an adventure in the great outdoors, but nature can be tough. You need to be ready for anything and everything. Chevy Silverado is built to handle the toughest conditions and get you everywhere you want to go worry-free. Silverado's designed to handle the big jobs. It's built for the great outdoors. With over 13,000 pounds of towing capacity and trailering sway control, Silverado can haul the biggest loads on the roughest roads and keep you cool as a Sunday drive. With eight available cameras and up to 14 different views, it can spot trouble before it gets to you. That's peace of mind. And when you're ready for the backcountry, Chevy Silverado 1500ZR2 owns the off-road. You name it, we run over it. No wonder it's Motor Trend's 2023 four-wheeler pickup truck of the year. So see your Chicagoland and Northwest Indiana Chevy dealer or go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and check out a Chevy Silverado. It's freedom to explore the great outdoors. It's Charlie Potter and the Great Outdoors on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Welcome back to the Great Outdoors show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio. I hope you're having a great summer. Before the break, I was talking about sage grouse and what's taking place in the American West, but it really is very relevant to what takes place across the United States with, with, with a lot of species where individuals who are not scientists but are out on the land every day, whether they're farmers or whether they're people who are recreating, have a different view as to what is happening with a particular species than do biologists who are not out on the land every day or nowhere near as much. So in the case of the West, this is, a, this is brewing and to be a, a big issue. Sage-browse numbers continue to decline, and they have been for roughly the last 15 or so years. Virtually every rancher and farmer agricultural interest in the West, Wyoming and, and the Montana and Idaho and Nevada, will tell you that the precipitous declining sage-grouse was first and foremost the result of West Nile, the West Nile virus entering that population. And just as the West Nile virus obliterated birds in the Midwest, it, I mean, it virtually... It knocked the crow population by over 90%, and it's taken more than a decade for the crow population to come up. It knocked raptor populations. It was a virus that went through the wild bird population, went through waterfowl. It went through everything. And in each case, it created a population decline. In the case of sage grouse, it was a collapse. And ranchers describe walking around reservoirs and finding just dead sage grouse lining the shoreline 10 years ago, 12 years ago. So the sage, the, the West Nile virus absolutely knocked the population of sage grouse, just as it did other species, particularly we're aware of here in the Midwest. Secondly, the West has been in a long-term drought 
over the last 15 years, with the exception of a couple years. Thirdly, the population of avian predators has gone way up in the West. Raptors are terrific predators on sage grouse. So you have a naturally occurring disease, West Nile virus, or maybe not naturally occurring, but you have a disease that got into the population and killed a lot of wild birds. You have a drought, which always strains the population. And then you have an increase in predators, both mammalian as well as avian. Those three factors, if you talk to ranchers in the West, they will say that those three factors more than anything else. And they they actually say those are the three factors that have caused a huge population decline. In the case of the U.S. government and the actions now being carried out on a large landscape scale by the Bureau of Land Management advocated by the scientific community, is that the sage-grouse population is collapsing because their habitat is being eliminated. Because the juniper trees, particularly in certain areas, are now taking over areas that were all sage. That doesn't wash with what people who are on the land are seeing and saying. There have been juniper trees in the West forever. There are certainly more juniper trees in the West now than there were 50 years ago, and this goes back to the whole issue of land management. But it's not a dramatic number in the last 10 to 15 years. There's virtually no change in the landscape in the last 10 to 15 years that could possibly explain the widespread decline in sage-grouse. Yet the scientific community, led by the Bureau of Land Management scientists and Forest Service Management scientists, are determined that 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 the cause is something different than people who are on the land looking at grouse every day are saying the cause was. So you've got the federal government now spending an astonishing amount of money on the sage-grouse recovery plan. And obviously not every area is the same, but you've got the federal federal government spending hundreds of millions of dollars on a sage-grouse recovery plan, which includes cutting down all countless numbers of juniper trees, which includes trying to bring back watering areas, which includes trying to dramatically reduce the number of cattle in the western landscape. The ranchers will say none of that's going to work because those weren't the causes of the population decline. We're going to know in the next few years if the sage-grouse can bounce back. The landscape is so enormous that the idea that the U.S. government or conservation groups could have an impact on sage-grouse habitat is a little far-fetched. We better hope the ranchers of the American West and the farmers are correct, that really the factors were, were bird flu and then predation and drought. Can't do anything about bird flu. We can do a lot about predation, but you don't see anyone in the federal government doing anything about predation on sage-grouse as well as other birds. That could be as big a problem as the West Nile virus. But there's no question that predators have increased enormously and and we're doing nothing to try to reduce their populations and their impact on sage-grouse. And then, of course, we can't do anything about the weather. So if the drought continues, that's just going to only make things worse. If we have more years like this year, then things will get better because the conditions will get better. But Once again, we find that huge amounts of federal money are being expended, maybe not with very good science behind it, and certainly not with the cooperation of landowners across the American West who believe they know what's going on. Wish there was a way for the federal government 
and their bureaucratic divisions, Bureau of Land Management and Forest Service, to find out, to figure out ways to sit down with the landowners who've been on these lands for generations, who know where every single tree on a 5,000-acre ranches, who know where all the springs are, who know where all the leks are, whether it be for grouse or whether it be for partridge. They know where everything on that on their property is. And a computer sitting in an office somewhere doesn't. And that's the conflict we continue to have across America. And, and certainly here in Illinois, we see it all the time, where scientific interests don't take into account what individuals on the land see and individuals on the land say is happening. It's just one of those things where as we become further detached from nature, 25 years ago, the scientists in a lot of these agencies, both state and federal, they grew up in the outdoors. They grew up hunting and fishing. They had relationships with landowners. That's not true today. So many of the scientists charged with managing wildlife have never spent any time in the outdoors, don't understand the landscape, don't understand the landowners. That's just a fact of what's happened as we become ever more urbanized, but it is, it is absolutely causing increased conflicts in, in points of view as how to manage wildlife, whether it's deer here in Illinois or whether it's waterfowl or whether it's quail, whether it's fish. Fisheries biologists actually tend to be a whole lot closer to the land than do other other biologists. But science is extremely important. But science is only as good as the information that comes in. And just because you don't have a scientific degree doesn't mean you don't know what's taking place on the land. And so we, we really need to have a much more open dialogue. And frankly, we need to have much more respect from individuals who have big education degrees and the, with against those who may not have much of an education degree formal education degree, but they got a lot of education when it comes to street smarts, or in this case, when it comes to landscape smarts, whether they be ranchers or farmers. In closing, I got one minute left. Simply want to say that we're following a story that is breaking about the Department of Education not funding schools that are are offering archery in the schools programs or programs that, that encourage target shooting. We're going to have much more on that next week, but it appears that One of the really successful programs in the country is being singled out by the Biden administration to not be continued because of the belief that maybe if you teach kids uh, how to shoot archery, uh, that might lead to them, I don't know, becoming dangerous citizens. I don't really know the answer, but the story is just breaking. We'll have much more next week. Thanks so much for listening. This is Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of America and Chicago. Actually, it's Chicago and America. Thanks for being with me. We'll be back next Sunday morning with much more in the great outdoors.